Abolition. Abolition. Sitting in his patrol car in Wilmington, North Carolina, Officer Michael Kevin Piner predicted Black Lives Matter protests would soon lead to civil war. I'm ready, Piner told another officer, adding that he planned to buy an assault rifle. We are just going to go out and start slaughtering them effing N-words, he said. Wipe them off the effing map. Piner said, Jesus, African Americans, that'll put them back about four or five generations. Piner, a Wilmington police officer since 1998, began the recording by expressing his fury about the ongoing protests against police brutality and racial injustice in the wake of George Floyd's death. The officer Piner was speaking to, Officer James Brian Gilmore, hired by the department in 1997, said that whites were now worshiping blacks, adding that he'd seen a video of a fine-looking white girl and this punk pretty boy bowing down and kissing their toes, whatever the hell that means. Later, while complaining about a black judge whom Moore, another officer, called an effing Negro magistrate, God damn it, Moore added, it's bad, man, because not all black people are like that. Most of them, Piner responded, 90% of them, Kevin, 90 effing percent of them, Moore said. Soon, Piner turned the conversation to his belief that the Civil War was imminent and his intention to buy a high-powered weaponry. After saying he was ready to slaughter black people, he added, God, I can't wait. As I believe that, that local news report uh, stated, this audio came to light by chance. It was a part of an internal, uh, regular, routine review where this audio was captured when they were sitting in squad cars talking to each other. How much more is out there that wasn't picked up in basic internal review practices? How much more?
can only catch my If I can only catch my breath I've got to keep on law enforcement close to and accountable to people through the elective process. The Office of Sheriff is a critical part of, of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. We must never erode this historic office. I know this. You know this. We want to be partners. We don't want to be bosses. We want to strengthen you and help you be more effective in your work. Abolition. Abolition. Today. You just heard Wilmington, North Carolina police terrorists caught on audio during an investigation. And that was followed by Detroit artist uh, Nader Omawale Run. And that concluded with attorney, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions speaking on the uh, sheriff being central to the Anglo-American heritage. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly onla- weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at ab- abolitiontoday.org. Abolition Today is also available on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Brother Max. Peace, Yusuf. I'm here at the Park of the Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, where we just uh, remember the anniversary of the Civil War beginning right here on April 12th. Mm-hmm. So for those who tuned in last week, uh, Max and I were out, you know, in uh, observance for those who uh, celebrate Easter, you know. Uh, but you also treated to a rebroadcast of Season 2, Episode 13 from last season, which was entitled Poets, Preachers, and Teachers, where we broke down slavery in black and white by providing the story of Otabenga, the history of white people in America, how America invented race, how America made skin color power, the contemporary conflation of slavery in the Bible, for-profit prison as an economic development program. We had spoken word poetry from Maya Angelou, Oscar Brown Jr., abolitionist Francis Ellen Harper, and Frederick Douglass, all Damn. that and much more. Yes. We had all that? So we had all of that in one episode. I don't know how we did Damn. it, but we did that all in one episode. <laughs> So if you missed it, check it out at abolitiontoday.org. You can check it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming platforms. So in this episode, we discuss Uh, the origins 
the creation, the history, the purpose, and actions of what are now modern U.S. police forces. And as I put out on my uh, Twitter page, I said, if FTP <laughs> was a, uh, if we had the human personification of it, or if we personified it, this would be that episode. But no pressure on you and I, Max. No pressure. Uh, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. And I ain't holding back nothing. Right. And as always, we'll have profound, in-depth discussions, amazing music and poetry, and we'll bring the words of the abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation and our Bridging the Gap segment. So, uh, Max, how was your week, or how were your past two weeks? Uh, it was nice to have a little time off, spending with my grandbabies and my wife. Um, just last Thursday, we did the first part of watching Netflix followed by Netflix's uh, 13th the film followed by a panel discussion out in Vermont. Uh, that's going to happen again this Thursday. If you want to attend, just go to the racial, the Vermont, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance uh, Facebook, and they have it in their event section. So that part two is next. We're going to have representatives coming from Oregon as well as Tennessee uh, and potentially from Colorado too. So it'll be all these states that have already gotten on the ballot or abolished, speaking about uh, the film 13. I look forward to that. Uh, we had our state operations meeting this last Saturday where I attended under my brand new uh, fancy new title. Uh, I am now <laughs> the national wait, the national campaign coordinator. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the national campaign coordinator. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, for the ASNN, Abolish Slavery National Network. And it was nice. Uh, it's, it's a very beautiful feeling to see us come together every week <clears throat> for our meetings, to see in this national group who all have the same agenda to end slavery and are not trying to do it. They're doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we've already got something done. we got more coming. <clears throat> and to have them together working as one unit, sharing information, sharing knowledge, sharing uh, resources uh, to get this done. It's, it's just a beautiful thing to see, man. I'm hope, I hope I'm alive one day to be able to read about it in the history books. <laughs> you know, that'd be awesome. Right. So that's been my week. Uh, how about you, bro? So uh, I survived the slave catchers this week. <laughs> that's, that's the summary of it. Uh been dealing with the traffic situation for the past two years, and surprisingly, the officer showed up to court. It was virtual court, but he showed up to court and told the truth. You know, and it just really, you know, saved me a bunch of license suspensions and, un, you know, just un outrageous fines and fees because the officer told the truth. You know, but that that is not going to rescue police as a whole from what we're getting ready to put down on them. And so before we even get started, Max, I have something to say. Oh, yeah? Do you mind? You indulge me for a second? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Do what you you know, do, I, I, love, I love digging into your books and pulling out something that's, like, appropriate. And, and I realized that you wrote this two years to the date from today. Yep. April 24, 2000. So I want to read it. So it's called One Dies Get Another, and it just reminds me of the Matthew J. 
Mancini book, you know, about one dies, get another, about convict leasing. But let's get into it. Prisons in 1866, one dies, get another convict. Prisons in 2020, same damn concept. In 1866, they manufacture your arrest and work you to death. In 2020, they get a check for just letting you lay on a slab till you take your last COVID-restricted breath. During both times, there's no care if you're someone's son, father, or brother. If one dies because they're sick, they'll get another just this quick. Slave catchers have never known the unemployment line. Even in a pandemic, they will do just fine. Prisons for profit are death's nexus where the reaper romps. There's mass graves of prisoners who were enslaved in Sugarland, Texas, in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx. On a plantation in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, all our relative skeletons, there are more bodies for you under the campus of the University of Georgia and under a playground in Philadelphia. Between being enslaved and being a convict, chattel slavery seemed healthier. Either way, you're still a slave and can end up buried on Hart's Island in a huge mass grave, in a shallow hole behind parchment, in an unmarked spot on an Angola prison plot, right next to generations of carbon copies dropped in the dirt where no one came to claim their bodies. The insanity of warehousing humanity for a price is our daily life where children have bounties on their heads for over a quarter of a million in cash if captured, where slavers snatch up souls like Satan's version of the rapture. In, near, in the near 160 years since the Emancipation Proclamation, America the Beautiful went from a slave state to a prison nation. Yet one thing remains the same over others, when slavery is legal, your life means little to the inherently evil, and if one dies, they'll get another. It's the American way. What did the nemesis Cain say in Genesis? Am I my brother's keeper? If so, does it count if I keep him in a cage for pay? What he won't do for love, he'll do for a check. Message, you will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when he, you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Genesis 27:40. And that's Max Parthas for you there. That's Max Parthas. I felt, I felt as though what better way than to open the show than digging that one out the archives. It is Poetry Month, too, man. I'm humbled and honored. Thank you very much. I, that was that was nice to hear. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely the message is there. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you become weary, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And we are the yoke throwers right now. <laughs> we are throwing them yokes. Hmm. We are weary. Yeah. Uh, we're weary of slave catchers. Uh, we're yeah, weary of what slavery. What do you want to do for? Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. so. We have a lot to get into this episode. We have a lot, a lot, a lot to get into. And by all means, if you need to get on your soapbox, go for it, brother. Because well, <laughs> you, you know, know we I do research, it quite often. 
we did a lot of research for this particular broadcast, trying to put it all together, because there's no way in hell that we can give you the whole story of slave catchers. Uh, we barely are able to incorporate it every week into the rest of the conversation, and, and not because we're too busy, but there's only so much a person's psyche can take of being murdered, right. raped, and brutalized, and captured, and, and, and just treated so inhumanely. There's only so much of that any person can take. Uh, and if we did a show, uh, the Slave Catcher Chronicles, it would be a weekly show, and they still would have more content than they'd be able to share with you every week. Uh, that's how right. bad police have committed genocide on our societies. They've never been our friend. In the past decade, between police and the uh, employees of the prison industrial complex, COs and such, uh, they have seen nearly 36,000 people dead in the past decade. That's enough people to fill up Yankee Stadium with dead bodies in every seat. If that's not a genocide, I, I don't know what is. And we're seeing it happening every single day. Every day, three people are dead from police, just like clockwork, every single day. Sometimes it's more. Uh, rarely is it less. Uh, so we're here to talk about the history of these slave catchers, uh, how they began. We want to make sure we share that. Uh, we want to tell you about the transition in it. We want to straighten out some narratives that are uh, pretty messed up when you hear them, um, especially that people jump on the news and start saying things about how, and this is what I've heard from both black and white people, uh, you only care about black life when a white person takes it. That's what they say. Like, how could that even come out of your mouth? I, I don't know. And it's allowed to go on television as a legitimate, uh, logical question to ask. <laughs> so we want to make sure that we speak on things like that. And it, these slave catchers are going out of their damn mind, man, from the very first clip you heard in the opening, which was hot as hell, <laughs> you know? A man right here, Omawali, killed it with Run, uh, and you heard what the Wilmington, North Carolina police were saying on duty. They were on duty having these conversations about slaughtering black people and how they can't wait to do it. And if you think they're the only ones, you are badly mistaken. The danger is at the in the red zone with these people right now. You never know which one is going to be your killer. You said just earlier today you managed to get free from the slave catchers, right? But you were rolling the dice just by interacting with them. Right. You know, and you got the good dice. You, you you rolled a 20 on your 20-sided dice, but you could have rolled a one, you know, and that's the, the sort of Damocles that we all live with. We don't know, is this the good cop, the bad cop? Is this the guy that's getting away with the corruption, or is this the guy that's saying, I don't want to do that? You, you never know, and that's how we live. It's traumatic as hell. Uh, so, yeah, Yusuf? Yeah, and just going back to the song, you know, from uh... – Nada Omawali, you know, on his website, he talks about what Run is all about. He says, Run is a song about stamina and perseverance. Lyrically, it's about someone running for their lives. Metaphorically, this is the symbolic story of every black person on the planet. It feels like a never-ending cycle from the slave catcher's hounds, from the Klansman's noose, from oppression, from discrimination, from the police. We're constantly running. Failure isn't an option. If I let them catch me, I'm as good as dead. You know, this is one of those jewels that I find 
that nobody else seems to know about. Go to YouTube right. and look up. Uh, you can go to our music page on YouTube. Is there right now at Abolition Today, our music playlist, or you could just go to N A D I R Omo Wally O M O W A L E and look up the song Run. It's got 51 likes. <laughs> like, are you crazy? That is something that we right. see hearing on the media, man. Like, he was killing it. So, yeah, give him some love. 51 likes sucks. Let's have it at 51,000 by tomorrow. That would be hot. And tell him we said Yeah, you, that would you be. Do. <laughs> you know, that would be hot. I, I love giving these artists uh, some shine, you know, because so there's so many complaints about how there's no good music. And, you know, I, I take my duty as a gatekeeper very seriously. So you ain't going to see no BS fly past me. And there's a lot of wonderful, great artists out there who are just being overlooked because their content is uh, more than corporate media is willing to deal with. Right. So um, let's start on one of these first stories, man. I got this one pulled up, right? We're talking about the slave catchers. And then we're going to go into the history of the slave catchers. Uh, The first one I want to talk about is the new gang that exists in Phoenix, Arizona. And the gang is called ACAB. Now, a lot of you already know what that's an acronym for. All cops are bastards. But apparently in Phoenix, it is a gang that is the equivalent to MS-13, the Bloods, and the Crips. And they have testified in court so as much in order to falsely incarcerate 17 Black Lives Matter protesters. So they made up an, an imaginary gang spitefully called it ACAB since you want to say it so much we're going to lock you up for it and then compared them to murderers and killers and charged them with gang uh, charges under this uh, frame up that is being done by the police department in Phoenix, Arizona and it makes it so bad at least three assistant chiefs were fully aware of the strategy and the plan in advance to frame these people simply because they didn't want them protesting or coming back to protest, so they were punishing them for daring to stand up for their rights. But also the chief of police, who was a black woman, pretended she didn't know when all the other policemen were saying, yes, she did, until one of the cops pulled out some tapes of them talking about it to prove who knew what and when. That's pretty amazing, man. You're talking about from the head down, framing protesters with something that could put them in prison for 30, 40 years simply because they dared mm-hmm. to stand up for their rights under the Black Lives Matter banner. You sir. <laughs> you know, when I first read this article, I, I had to, I was looking and I was like, okay, this is has, this has to be one of those satire sites. Like, is this the onion or the, the bee or something like that? And when I saw that this really happened, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised. And I'm also not surprised that nothing's really going to happen about it. Sure, I I believe the chief stepped down or something of that nature in the case, and that's the extent of it. You know, no one's going to be prosecuted behind this when these are clear violations. These are clear human rights violations we're not even going to talk about, you know, constitutional violations, but they fabricated evidence to arrest people. 
for ex- exercising their First Amendment right. Mm-hmm. They created they created false documentation. They entered them into the gang database called GMIC. They 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 completed gang member information cards. They entered them into the uh, what what is it called? Gang net, which is sort of like a uh, national database of gang members. Like they put these people's lives on the line by this, because you know if they end up in jail or prison, now they have to be put on specialized units, and then you know gangs war with each other inside prisons, and they just look at it as a gang as a gang. Okay, that's a gang, then you know we have to go after them. Because we know people fight over control. So it extends beyond just this article. It's like this was a real crime committed here. This is a serious crime that got committed, and no one's going to get uh, convicted for anything behind it. We don't know how long this has even been going on, not just in Arizona, but all over the place. How many times have they done this to people? You know, whenever we see this come up, Max, that we always want them to start looking at the people involved and start looking at all their cases. How many other people have they framed to put them in jail, Max? This is a conspiracy. Um, And it's examples of crimes against humanity that should be an international issue. You know, uh, America dares to chastise other nations. Just recently they did it with India, talking about they're hearing some things about human rights violations in their prisons and with their police to India, but this was happening here in America and probably worse than anywhere else in the world. Um, we're talking about a whole department now that is guilty of conspiracy to defraud. And they like said create a crime that didn't exist, created a gang that didn't exist. But here's the bottom line for me, right? You got these innocent people who you just criminalized, And now you're going to turn them into state property by convicting them, duly convicted, right? That's how it works, by convicting them of a crime they never committed to make them into state property where they could potentially be in a cage for the next 30 years. If that's not slavery and slave catching, then what the hell is? Like, what is it? And that's done by the state. You just turn people into a commodity, right? And they never got anything. Innocent people. Hell, they, it's not even that they haven't done anything. They dared to exercise their rights. And this punishment for exercising your rights, your guaranteed rights in the United States, where those very rights are not protected by the people who have sworn oaths to do so. They're actually being violated by the very people who swore before man and God that they would defend those rights for you until death. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the word, yeah, you mentioned the word conspiracy, and quite naturally, you know, I went into my legal mind, and under uh, 42 U.S. Code 1985, it's actually called conspiracy to interfere with civil rights. So there's a, it's actually codified in law. Most people know 1983, that's the lawsuit against officers, but then there's a specific one, another subsection, 1985, that specifically deals with conspiracy to interfere with civil rights, depriving persons of rights or privileges. And it talks about two or more people, you know, conspiring to do this. So we have – they they had this conspiracy, create this fake gang. Let's uh, 
arrest people for protesting. So clear violation right there. Hopefully the attorneys out there in Arizona are on top of it, and they're going to bring these civil rights cases. But we want to see people get arrested for it too, like bring them to heel. That's another place I've been mentioned all over since uh, Hillary Clinton famously said that, you know, about bringing people to heel. Well, officers like these need to be brought to heel. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the police department, and then we'll go into a, a clip even deeper about it. Um, this comes from the NAACP.org site, and it's um, titled The Origins of Modern-Day Policing. The tough-on-crime laws have put an unprecedented number of nonviolent offenders behind bars, and our neighborhoods feel no more secure. This system has deep roots in slavery, and it starts with slave patrols. The origin of modern-day policing can be traced back to the slave patrol. The earliest formal slave patrol was created in the Carolinas in the early 1700s and one, with one mission, to establish a system of terror and squash slave uprisings with the capacity to pursue, apprehend, and return runaway slaves to their owners. Tactics included the use of excessive force to control and produce desired slave behavior. Sounds very much like the story we just described, right? Where they're able to right. go ahead and just do this to 17 innocent people. And they have a quote from the uh, North Carolina Slave Patrol oath that says, I, patroller's name, do swear that I will as searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district faithfully and as privately as I can Discharge the trust reposed in me as the law directs to the best of my power, so help me God. So they're swearing before God that they're going to make sure that these slaves never have any weapons. <laughs> Second Amendment, anybody? Okay. It goes right. on to say slave patrols continued until the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment. Following the Civil War, during Reconstruction, Slave patrols were replaced by militia-style groups who were empowered to control and deny access to equal rights to freed slaves. They relentlessly and systematically enforced black codes, strict local and state laws that regulated and restricted access to labor, wages, voting rights, and the general freedoms for formerly enslaved people. In 1868, ratification of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution technically granted equal protections to African Americans, essentially abolishing black codes. Jim Crow laws and state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation swiftly took their place. And I'm going to finish it with this. They said, by the 1900s, local municipalities began to establish police departments to enforce local laws in the East and Midwest, including Jim Crow laws. Local municipalities leaned on police to enforce and exert excessive brutality on African Americans who violated any Jim Crow law. Jim Crow laws continued through the end of the 1960s. I was alive during this period at the end of the 1960s. You too. You know, right. like we, we, right. we came into this world under this BS. And those Jim Crow laws that many speak about and never mention the punishment that came from it, which you were subject to convict leasing, immediately put right back into slavery because you drank from a water fountain 
or you couldn't pay the fines, or you couldn't do this or that. Whatever it may be, you are immediately turned back into property under the 13th Amendment. You sir? You hit it right there, Max. You know, because uh, see, when we start pointing things out, this is how people can see the connection to chattel slavery. A lot of times this stuff is skipped over, and then it's just the blanket definition of what the 13th Amendment was. As you say, oh, this 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but what it did was abolish chattel slavery, but transitioned it into what we have from 1865 until today. You know, and when you skip over the you skip over the convict leasing and the black codes and all of the things that happened during that time, this is how you can start seeing intent because uh, the black codes maintained. You know, I'm reading from another article that we have here from the American Bar Association that's entitled "How You Start Is How You Finish: The Slave Patrol and Jim Crow Origins of Policing," and Within the article, they mention the black codes maintained the de facto structure of slavery without formally calling it slavery. Other black codes restricted blacks' right to vote, dictated how and where they could travel, and where they could live. I mean, doesn't this sound familiar when we start talking about redlining or we talk about – isn't there – we we had Jordan Scott out of Oregon on here last last season, and she explained to us how they still have laws on the books where they can't sell homes to blacks in certain Oregon towns. Tennessee too. And so, yeah, Tennessee. And then it also says because many ex-Confederate soldiers that transitioned to working in policing or elsewhere in the justice system, for example, as judges, the justice system, including law enforcement, perpetuated the oppression of African Americans. And we can clearly think of just uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Rikers Island and the judge that uh, sat over Judge Riker and how when these uh, when the fugitive slave laws came into play, which we'll talk about shortly, and how people were just rounded up and taken to the island and he was sending them down to the plantations without them even having trial to even have to prove, and it's crazy that I have to say that, that they had to prove that they were actually free. And it's crazy, I have to say that. <laughs> they had to prove that they were free. So there's this the connection right there, Max. Yeah. This is madness indeed. Um, you know, this what police do in hunting down those who have been criminalized without complaint. You don't see them out here complaining about these pictures too much. We don't want to do that anymore. That's not what you hear. You see quotas happening. We have to meet certain quotas. So while they're out here doing that, the people that they funnel into this eventually are disenfranchised to voting. And we're talking about 6 to 10 million people across the country who have been disenfranchised by this unconstitutional act that is occurring within our justice system. Uh, According to the 14th Amendment, uh, as a citizen, it says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privilege or immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections under the law. 
and yet we're taking up our right to vote away. So six to ten million people like that, and there's a tool that we have available for you that you can look at that comes from the ACLU, uh, ACLU.org. We'll share it on our website, and it's called the Felony Disenfranchisement Laws Map. It shows you how all across the country how they're – and when you realize that the incarceration rates are primarily affecting those who have been historically disenfranchised, you can see how your rights are being stolen from you and your power to even make a change in the system. Yusuf? Uh, comments, and then we'll get into the next track, which is the history of policing in America. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that according to that map that they put out, 5.85 million Americans are unable to vote. And out of the 50 states, we only have two states, Maine and Vermont, where everyone has a right to vote, period. That's all I wanted to add to that. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you can see this structural attack on our constitutional rights and the lack of defense thereof, and that is a major problem with the constitutional crisis. So let's go ahead and get into the history of policing in America. It comes from Thulan, which is NPR, uh, and that's going to be followed by P.J. Morton. You should be ashamed. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Pontus and Yusuf Hassan, FTP. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Hi, I'm Randam Fatah. And I'm Ramtin Arablui. We co-host NPR's history podcast, Through Line, to help give some historical context to the police killing of George Floyd and so many other Black people in this country. This week, we're bringing you the deep history of policing in America. We wanted to understand how the relationship between police and the Black community had evolved to one so bloody and tragic. So we reached out to this historian. My name is Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. In his book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Khalil lays out a historical argument for how black people have been criminalized over the past 400 years in the U.S. And he does that by telling parallel narratives about the history of policing in the North and the South. These stories share one key feature, the use of brutal force to control black Americans. Policing in America started in the mid-1600s with the Boston Watch, essentially a neighborhood watch group. But some of the first police forces in the South were created to control enslaved black people. They would come to be known as slave patrols. Almost all white men had to serve in these patrols. Their duties were written into law, like the slave patrol statute from Louisiana in 1835. Arrest any slave or slave, whether with or without a permit, who may be caught in the woods or forest with any fire or torch, which slave or slave thus arrested shall be subjected to corporal punishment not exceeding 30 stripes. So the tying together early on, the surveillance, the deputization essentially of all white men to be police officers, and then to dispense corporal punishment uh, on the scene are all baked in from the very beginning. The Civil War eventually brought an end to slavery in America, but for most black people in the South, it didn't fundamentally change their lives. And by the early 20th century, the KKK would emerge to enforce control over black citizens in the South. And this pushed millions of black citizens to flee to Northern progressive cities as part of what would become known as the Great Migration. Police officers 
receives African-American migrants uh, in the same way that their white neighbors and community peers did, which is with contempt and hostility. When a white person throws a Molotov cocktail into a new black homeowner on a street that had previously been all Irish or all Polish or all German, the police come and they arrest the black family and defend the white mob. And this happens time and time over and over again. They are policing the racial norms of white supremacy from the very beginning in the North. Black skin becomes equated with criminality. And according to Khalil Gibran Muhammad, the system hasn't fundamentally changed since then. He says that pointing out the problem is clearly not sufficient to fix the system. Because the problem has been known for a century. The evidence has been presented for a century. The recommendations for change, for holding police officers accountable, for charging them with criminal offenses when they behave criminally. It's a century of the same story playing out over and over again. It seems to me that's what's possible is recognizing that police officers and police agencies are incapable of fixing themselves. And so the question that has to be asked in the wake of George Floyd, and I think this question is being asked and answered by more white people than I've seen in my lifetime is, do white people in America still want the police to protect their interests over the rights and dignity and lives of black and in too many cases, brown, indigenous, and Asian populations in this country. Our whole country is waiting to hear the answer to that question. You should be ashamed that nothing's really changed and it's your ignorance that won't give me a chance because of the color of my skin you won't listen and after all this time you won't change your mind and you should be ashamed what more will it take before you realize your mistake you've got it all wrong and you've been wrong all alone now look where we are we haven't healed one scar and after all this time you won't change your mind you should be ashamed Mm -hmm. you should be ashamed for believing what they say just taking their word and causing you to hate you don't know me And it wouldn't take much to see that we are more the same. Don't even want to know my name. And you should be ashamed. Mm-hmm. 
after all this time, I hope you change your mind. Cause you should be ashamed. Abolition. You just heard the history of policing in America, and that was a through-line NPR, followed by P.J. Morton's You Should Be Ashamed. They really should be. They really should be ashamed, Max. Yeah, this denial is just too much. Um, You know, I've written a lot of poetry about this issue. Uh, Police seem the most the most in denial anybody I've ever seen. They just refuse to accept the damage that they do. And if I say to them, you know, uh, you're a slave catcher. That's that's what you're doing. You're out here hunting people for the state who become property and then can be worked for free or sold on the open market in the form of prison stocks and jail bonds. Uh, they get mad at me. Uh, you know, I'm not a slave catcher. Uh, I got four kids, and I donate to the needy. And uh, last week, I saved 10 people. I, I, I got 16 cats out of trees this week, and I play Santa Claus every year. But let me ask you. And how I got many a black slaves... friend. Yeah, and, and I got a black friend. His name is Rudolph. Uh, <laughs> how many how many slaves do you need to capture before you qualify as a slave catcher? That's the question I got, because if you're unjustly incarcerating a single person, congratulations, you're qualified. You are now a slave catcher. And if you only do that once or twice a year where you're like, you know, these people shouldn't have been arrested, but I had to do it. They were breaking the law. He was smoking a joint. Weed weed isn't legal here. So I had to to cite him, and then he's on parole. So he's going to do another 10 years in prison now for this joint. But I wish I hadn't have done it, but I had to do my job. If you only do that a couple times a year, just multiply it times the number of policemen across the country. How many policemen do we have? A million. That's 2 million people million. unjustly mm-hmm. incarcerated every single damn year. You don't think your little pieces of sand add up to a mountain? So all you got to do is catch one. Um, I was watching this video earlier today in preparation for this, and it's called A Brief History of Police Impunity in Black Deaths. And it comes from Vox, B-O-X. And it was just so heartbreaking to see it. You know, they put up the numbers, right? So they're naming the black people who have been murdered by police. And then uh, as that number grows, they have underneath it those who have been charged and those who have been convicted and those the numbers are going up for the deaths. <laughs> the charges, 20, 30, convictions, three, four at the most. You know what I mean? Right. And it's just heartbreaking to see it, one after the other after the other. And, you know, one of the things I like about this Vox film is if you go to the site and you watch it on our page, you'll see the, the people holding up their signs. And one of the signs say, now remove criminalizing a race from the 13th Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there because mm. that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. It's criminalizing people. Yusuf? Yeah, and uh, you know, just just looking at the history when we start talking about the fugitive slave laws and how it wasn't just those who were employees of the state 
but it was everyone. Like, all white men were commissioned with this responsibility or this duty. And or else. nothing it was against the law if you yeah, didn't nothing, do it. Exactly. And nothing has really changed with that. Like, we have a large number of white people in America where they still feel as though it's their duty to police us. And police How many movement. times, yeah, do we have to justify being in a building or being sitting on a park bench or walking down a particular street? Heck, we've seen incidences, incidents where uh, FedEx drivers and uh, just other delivery company drivers are being stopped. People with their pickup trucks blocking their path, asking them what are they doing in their neighborhood. As if he stole the FedEx truck and stole the uniform and everything. The man just doing his job. And that racist mindset has never been removed. It's still happening every single day. Many of these police killings that we talk about start with a phone call. Where someone calls the police and they weaponize the police. I, you know, the white person encounters someone, feels as though that they don't believe, they don't belong there, and they call the police on them. And then the police come, and we already know what happens the vast majority of times when police encounter black people. You know, this is factually speaking. You know, we could probably have opened the phone lines to hundreds of black people to call in, and they all will have at least one story where they had to justify being somewhere that they had a legitimate right to be there. When you're a criminalized fear the people, consequences. When you're a criminalized people, existing is against the law. doesn't matter right. what you're doing. You know, they kill us for everything. Isn't that what James Baldwin said? James Baldwin said being black is, is uh, what was he said? About being in a constant fit of rage or constant state uh, of rage. To, to be black and relatively woke is to be in a constant state of rage. Yes. 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 To be black in America and relatively woke is to be yes, in a constant that's, state that's of it. rage. To be, that's it right there. It's true. You know, I'm in that all the time, but I've learned how to recon, redirect the anger into constructive things. And I'm hoping that the listeners today will do the same thing because we're not going to leave you without some options of what can I do. We're going to give you some stuff that you can do and get involved in right now. Um, but it's just so much, man. Like uh, the discovery of the uh, point system that they had in Atlanta, which was much like oh, the, my goodness, another one. Like the quota system they found in New York and in Philadelphia and mm-hmm. in other states, you know. Uh, and, and Atlanta tried to hide theirs. Uh, let me read the article a little bit about what they found in Atlanta. Uh, this comes from April 11th, so just not too long ago. A CBS 46 investigation uncovered an incentive program that encourages police to write more tickets. And the Atlanta police tell them that they are rewarded points based on their policing actions. Uh, The APD insists that officers are not penalized based on their point totals, but the officers, uh, CBS 46 investigative reporter Rachel Polanski spoke with said they'd often 
placed in undesirable zones or assigned undesirable shifts if they don't score enough points. And they actually have this big-ass board with people's names on it and what your score of arrests are, like as a competition. They also found in the investigation that this is not the first time that this point system was called into question. Back in 2020, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, she created a use of force advisory council and she tasked them with issuing recommendations to improve policy of policing in the city. And among those recommendations was eliminating performance evaluation systems and disciplinary actions that incentivize officers to make unnecessary arrests. Uh, they said that they reached out to police departments all over the country, and none of them reported having similar programs. Uh, so why are Atlanta's police officers being incentivized to pull over more drivers? And they show this uh, chart, as I told you, with people's names and scores. And they say at the top left, you'll see where it says target goals are based on an average of eight credits accumulated per day worked. So you got to accumulate eight credits a day, meaning that I have to get that eight credits, right? Uh, a former Atlanta mm-hmm. police officer worked in the law enforcement for new, nearly two decades, told CBS 46 investigative reporter Polanski as they looked at the Zone 1 performance evaluation chart. And here's the part I got highlighted, and I'm going to finish with this. They said, for example, writing a ticket earns APD officers one and a half points, while a felony or a juvenile arrest is worth five points. So a juvenile arrest is worth the most points. So if you're hunting children, you're going to get your points. Meanwhile, calls for service, which include 911 calls, are worth a quarter of a point, just a quarter of a point. He says, I'm not going to lie. If I think the person has the finances to pay for it, I will stack those tickets. Uh, Does the system encourage officers to do police work that earns them more points? Uh, Polanski asked, and he said, oh, yeah, absolutely, because I might decide to sit somewhere in the cut and wait for somebody to glide through stop signs. See a stop sign that I know people are definitely going to miss. I will sit there and wait there for my points, the former officer told Polanski. I'm not going to lie. If I think the person has the finances to pay for it, I will stack those tickets. If I think that the person does not, I will not stack the tickets. So they, these slave catchers out hunting children primarily uh, because they're worth more money as always, uh, decide on the spot what you're worth and whether or not they should extort you for more money or less money. This is happening in Atlanta. I mean, do they even know what a good day for policing is? A good day for policing is when your ass will have to do nothing. When you ain't got a call, you ain't got to go nowhere, nobody shot nobody, nobody stole nothing. That's a good day for you. It's supposed to be a good day for you because that's how the Constitution works, right? Which, but right. For you, apparently, a good day is the more Negroes you throw in cages, especially young Negroes, right? You su- and, you know, just this chart that you're reading from, it's for Zone 1 of the Atlanta Police Department. So that's like Almond Park, Grove Park, Center Hill, Cary Park. And, <laughs> again, they're so used to getting away with this like this is so normal that this information is available to be seen this isn't hidden this isn't a hidden document i'm sitting here looking right at the document on my computer max you know it's like 
right there. Recovering a yeah, basically a juvenile arrest gets more points points than recovering a gun. You know, they get a point for taking fingerprints when that's their job, but they get points did, for that as well. Did you see you know, the description <laughs> of what they get for the points they made? Effective needs improvement. Highly satisfactory. Yeah, and I'm, and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm looking at this one officer. So the officer's names are redacted, but the one he had a target. This officer had a target goal of 72 points. The officer only came in with 20.3 points, and it's in big red letters. Unacceptable. This is probably some officer where they were just letting people go. You know, like a lot of things are just like so petty. But he got a huge, he or she got a huge, uh, unacceptable. And so there's also that peer pressure because this this list is provided to all of the officers so they can see who's the one that's not pulling their own weight. You know, so they're looking at this officer who scored the 20.3 out of 72, which is low. Some officers had target goals and, and, you know, 104, 112, 120. You know, even those who've exceeded their goals, they still didn't get, like, really good scores. Like, yeah, one, his goal was 120, brought in a 125, and they just said effective. Effective. They didn't give them the highly effective. Yeah, they didn't give them the highly satisfactory. They, They want the ones the far exceeded, like, one officer had 104 as the target goal and brought in 172. It got huge outstanding for that one. That we officer saw was probably just out there violating people all day. All day. We saw a similar system with the, uh, I believe, with the Alabama probation companies, the for-profit probation companies, where the more people mm-hmm. that they violated, they would have a little celebration. And it's the same thing that happens with this Atlanta Police Department, apparently. If you lock up a bunch of young people, guess what? You get a pizza. So you're going to throw away people's lives so you can get a pizza, a pat on the back, and some cheers from other slave catchers around you. That's why you're throwing people's lives away, huh? Not even for monetary gain, because they make you no money. You just look like an important person who got the pizza that week. Is that how it works? Uh, man, it's, it's shameful. Right, and... and- and on the story of you, uh, I lost the article. I wanted to bring up one particular article because it just infuriated me. Which one was that? Uh, this is the one where the uh, off-duty officer basically kidnapped uh, a child off the street. Uh, if you can give me a filler for 30 seconds, Max, to give me a chance to uh, pull up that article. All right. Um, As I said in the beginning, we're not trying to make friends today. Uh, We know that calling these fools slave catchers is something that some see as divisive uh, because cops don't see themselves as slave catchers. But frankly, I don't give a damn what they see themselves as. The facts hold up. The 13th Amendment allows for slavery to be legal. We have the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth. The vast majority of those inmates come from one select group of people who only represent a small fraction of the actual total population. Um, And you're out here hunting people. 
based on mm-hmm. what we have now is modern Jim Crow laws, three strike rules, marijuana violations, parole violations, technical violations, no knock warrants. Right. At some point, you're going to need to recognize who you are and what your contribution to society is. And I believe one day in the future, you will be held accountable. And it's really very simple. If you wore the uniform, you were a part of the crime. That's what happened. That's what happened in the in the second set of trials during the Nuremberg trials, the ones that were just doing their job. They got held accountable for. But yes, and this is going to be real quick, and then we can jump into our next track. So, right. Merced police have arrested an employee of a federal prison for allegedly kidnapping a child. Police say 50-year-old Earl Stokes, who works at the United States Penitentiary in Atwater, might face charges. Might face charges of kidnapping, criminal threats, child endangerment, reckless driving, assault, and battery. Stokes is the husband of a Merced police officer. According to the police, on Tuesday, a group of children were walking through a Merced neighborhood when at least one of them kicked its front door of a home. Stokes, who learned about it, was neither the victim of the original incident nor knew about which of the children kicked the door. He chased the kids down in his vehicle. He found them in Davenport Park and ordered them to stop or they will be shot. One of the kids complied with this order. Police say Stokes grabbed that child, causing visible injuries, ordered the child to climb into the bed of his truck, and forcibly took the child to the home where the door was kicked. After an investigation by Merced Police, Stokes turned himself into police on Wednesday and has been booked into the Merced County Jail. I just wanted to get that one in there. That's like the one where the kid just got arrested for stealing a bag of potato chips that he didn't steal, and they was treating him like a murderer. He must have been about seven years old, eight years old, coming out of the store right. in the back, and, and, and the police are holding him like he's a, a wanted criminal and threatening their lives, and they tossed him in the back of the car. Um, but, yeah, let's go ahead and get into our next track. I did a little switch around, Yusuf. Uh, you don't understand why. I want to mm-hmm. make sure we get enough time to talk about the Loyola killing. Uh, that happened. So um, I, I want to make sure we get that in there because that has really got sure, me sure. going. Today. So let's start by listening to a brief description of what occurred. It's going to be followed by the great, great Rick James, Mr. Policeman. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Today's topic is the Slave Catcher Chronicles, and we'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Once again in the U.S., a white police officer fatally shoots another unarmed black man. Grand Rapids Police has released the controversial video of the confrontation on Wednesday. A police dashboard camera captured an unarmed officer pulling over Patrick Leoya, a 26-year-old immigrant from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Then the officer's camera is turned off, either deliberately or because the off button was pressed during the struggle. A home security camera and Leoya's passenger videotape the rest. The taser goes off. Twice. Missing Leoya and hitting the ground. Then the shot. It's unclear why at that point the officer fired. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump says the video shows it was an unnecessary, excessive and fatal use of force against an unarmed black man who was confused and terrified for his life. 
Police killings of black Americans in recent years, particularly the videotaped death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, launched the Black Lives Matter movement in protests across the U.S. Whatever conclusion the investigation finds in this case, Leoya's family and civil rights activists are left to mourn yet another police killing of an unarmed black American. John Hendren, Al Jazeera.
Abolition. It's a shame. It's a disgrace. Why every time you show your face, somebody dies, man. Somebody dies. The great words of Rick James. And that's... uh, That was preceded by the Al Jazeera's report on the Patrick Leoya execution in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Max? Right. Right word. Call it what it is. Um, I used the Al Jazeera uh, clip, and I still had to cut some out uh, because all over the news where they're talking about, they're trying to justify this bullshit. Excuse my language, but it is what it is. They're trying to... uh, make the police look like they, he was afraid for his life, uh, that, you know, he had no other alternative and he was scared to death. But I seen the video. And when I heard that the third, well, the third video came, which came from the person who was in the car with Patrick, that they took the video, I mm-hmm. searched everywhere and couldn't find it in, in, in Western media. So I had to find it outside the country so I could watch it with my own eyes. And if you see it, You'll know exactly what I saw. This policeman wrestling with this unarmed man pushed his head down with his left hand, pulled out his gun and put it to the base of Patrick's skull and fired at point-blank range. That was an execution. Uh, You could have did anything. You could have shot him in the leg. You could have shot the ground to scare him. You could have shot him in the arm. You could have shot him in his ass. You purposely chose to put the gun at the back of his skull while holding his head down. That's an execution. And why is this man still walking the streets after doing that and it's on video? Nobody can tell me what I didn't see. I know what I saw. So the whole story is to be told, but that that was my, what I saw with my own eyes of what happened. I don't give a damn about everything surrounding that because we know if you're criminalized, they'll come after you for everything. So apparently this one was coming after him because he said the plates didn't match uh, the car. Uh, and the, the man tried to run, reminiscent of Walter Scott here in South Carolina wasn't really running, holding, pulling up his pants, and just kind of moving away. He just didn't want to get caged, uh, which is what the cop was trying to do to him. And apparently the results or the verdict, because you made a verdict right there, you murderer, uh, the verdict is that this altercation is uh, worthy of death on the spot right here, right now. Not pretend death, but let's execute him. Like we in the mafia, put it behind his head. Pow, nigga, how dare you? That's how you do it. And I'm very upset about this because my entire career as an abolitionist, as a person fighting for social justice, began with this very same story where 16-year-old Lawrence Myers was shot face down on the ground in the back of his head by a white rookie cop. And that was in 1995. This is 2022, and we still getting capped in the back of the head or in the back of squad cars while we're handcuffed or laying face down on the ground over and over again. Man, I want to be somebody like they stole somebody. That's how I feel right now. You (laughs) said. You know, Max, uh, I want to go back to the 90s, too. It wasn't a lethal encounter, but it was the Rodney King case in 1992, 
where we all saw the video. We know what we saw. We saw Rodney crawling around on the ground, and he was getting beaten to death, pretty much. Brutalized. You know, the officers, yeah, brutalized. And I remember them talking about it on Donahue. Remember that show? Yes. They were talking about it on Donahue, and I remember this, you know, little young, naive white girl stands up, and she says, oh, we don't know what he did before that. And I was hoping someone asked the question, because I was sure yelling it into the TV. What could he have done that would have made it okay for that to happen to him? And so I asked the same question in this case with Patrick Leoya. What could he have done that everybody would be okay with that being the result? They always talk about we're a nation of laws. So no matter what he had done, there's a law for it, right? If he killed somebody, if he raped somebody, if he kidnapped somebody, or any other type of crime, there are laws for it. There's what they call due process. So this officer, just as you just stated, when he became the judge, jury, and executioner, he already bypassed all of his constitutional rights. And he made that decision right there on the spot that what he did was worthy of death. That's what that's the decision he made right there and then. You know, it's not the situation with the woman that just got convicted with the oh, I thought it was my taser or the officer who murdered Oscar Grant, you know, also thinking it was the taser and again, they were you know, laying down. You know, same situation. But this officer and I always talk about a lot of officers have bloodlust. They have this bloodlust. And as proof of that, you know, there's the article we, we covered it a little while ago about the officers in uh, Vallejo, uh, California, where they were bending their badges. They had this ritual where when they get a killing, they, you know, they, they bend their badges a certain way, like the edges of the badges, like a badge of honor that you carry, that you've got a killing on duty. There's this bloodlust that many of them have, and this one clearly had it. I'm, I'm angry that we don't have the name of the officer. You know, by they now, and I think Al, Sh- yeah, Al Sharpton has been calling for it. You know, it's like they're protecting him. And, you know, when, when I first heard of this and w- when you and I discussed it the other day, I said, well, no, nah, they're not going to back this officer because I thought back to the Justin Volpe situation in the 70, what was it, the 71st precinct in Brooklyn when Volpe decided to stick a broom handle, you know, up the behind of Abner Louima and how the officers didn't shield him, that many officers even testified against him, and he ended up getting 30 years to life in prison. But now here we are. Has it been a week now? Over a week. Still nothing. Yeah, still, still nothing. nothing. Still nothing. We have clear video evidence, and there is no crime. And it's, it's not like it was a, a heated situation where they were involved in a gun battle and the officer had to shoot him to kill him. This is he a never situation made any violent where, moves. Right. And once he actually had the back of his head, he's grabbing him by his hair, and he pushes his face into the ground. He had control of him at that point. And he deliberately reached for his gun, pulled it out, put it at the base of his skull, 
and he pulled the trigger. Oh, no, before pulling the trigger, he did the usual, like officers love doing. Oh, he's reaching for my gun. Or the person mm-hmm. would be laying there still, and the officers are still yelling, stop resisting, stop resisting. These sure. are the types of things they do. They train them this way. For our listeners, we sure. always tell you to go watch the documentary, Do Not Resist. See how they're trained. The guy training them tells them, you know, when you kill somebody, you'll go home and have the best sex with your wife that you've ever had in your life. They're being trained this way, to have this bloodlust. That officer had bloodlust, Max. And on top of that, the reason I had to do such a search to find this apparently banned in the United States video uh, was because the officer turned his damn video off just before he killed the man. So, you know, that would have caught it close up right there at the base of his skull. But coincidentally, after the man was down on his stomach with his hand in, in his head, his camera suddenly went off. And it doesn't happen by mistake. You got to hold that button down for three seconds. <laughs> you got to hold that down. Mm. So he held the How button about down and then shot the man in the back of the head. And fortunately, there, he didn't, there was another person in the car who was videotaping it that caught it off. Otherwise, we'd be, you know, at, hearing about how the man charged him. And he had to dodge him real quick. And then from the back, he shot him because he was dodging him after charging him with a knife and all of this. Or there would have been a gun planted on the ground or something like that. Yeah, like they talked about with Ronald Green's case. You know, where they talked about, oh, he died in a car accident. When come to find out, they basically beat him to death. And then the officer who killed him ends up dead shortly thereafter in a car crash. This reminds me of the Casual Killing Act of 1669, where it says, Mm -hmm. quote, unquote, be it enacted and declared by this grand assembly, if any slave resists his master or others by his master's order correcting him and by the extremity of the correction should chance to die, that his death shall not be considered a felony, but the master or that other person appointed by the master to punish him be acquitted from molestation, since it cannot be presumed that malice existed, which alone make a murderer or a felony, or or that anything should induce any man to destroy his own estate. You're just property. They can't even hold the person accountable for killing you. You, you if you get punished according to this law from 1669. You deserve death for daring to stand up. And that's what we saw. Hmm. And we see so many of them, one after the other, after the other. Not everybody makes it to the prisons. Like 670,000 or 80,000 people go into the prison system every year. But a large a percentage of them never make it that far. Just the, right. any any interaction with police, any interaction with police at all, automatically comes with a chance that you might die that day. That's unacceptable. How could you accept that in any other uh, type of industry or profession? If you walked into the hospital and said, you know, just because you're here, you might die today. But I, I just got an ingrown nail. What are you talking about? You know? Right. You wouldn't accept that anywhere. But because we have so many killer cops with so many of them out there having this, uh, I guess, this warrior cop mentality that as you pointed out in the film do not resist (laughs) is something that is uh, pushed 
and uh, incentivized and, and they're told that this is what they're supposed to do. I mean, what, what do you expect? What, what do you expect us to do? This is trauma to us all. Let me tell you something. I don't like watching snuff films, but I had to watch this one so I could see with my own eyes whether or not I saw an execution. Do you think I'm ever going to be the same again? Do you think you are after you see it? Mm-mm. No way. And, you know, uh, you know, every time this comes, these type of situations come up, I always think of our girl Candy. You know Candy, right? Candace Owens. And I remember what she said about George Floyd, George Floyd when she was talking about how – Oh, we choose, like, the worst people to be our heroes. And, you know, my pushback to her was we shouldn't have even known about George Floyd. Okay, so he was he allegedly used a, a, a fake $20 bill or something like that. So he should have been arrested and gone through his due process. And the rest of the world should have never even heard his name. He came across a killer cop who sat there and deliberately murdered him. We shouldn't know him. We shouldn't know most of these people's names for the things that they get killed for. Philando Castile, what, an expired expired sticker on his tag was what led to his murder? And we can go down the list. Sandra Bland, because she talked too much, she talked back. Yeah, yeah got, it, 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 it makes me angry, Max. I got a couple friends in law enforcement who are whistleblowers. One is Matthew Fogg, who was a former FBI agent, and Ken Williams, who was a former policeman. And they're speaking to those brothers, both black men. Uh, who are abolitionists as well now that they're no longer on the force and are whistleblowers, um, they told me that on average they think about 10% of the police forces are corrupt, 10 to 15%. And they think that uh, 10 to 15% in addition to that know about the corruption and do nothing. So it's basically 30% of the police forces involved. You're talking about 300,000 freaking people, man. That's larger than standing armies. Right. That's I mean, a lot of people. That's a lot of people. 300,000 who are either directly involved in the corruption or stand by and let it happen, which is just as damn guilty. That is not a small bunch. That is not one bad right. apple. That is right. enough to bad a- yeah. <laughs> some of the most biggest countries in the planet. Bloodlust. Bloodlust. And, you know, he, he, from their numbers, 70% are just trying to do their job. And I, I, I can see that, you know. E, e, even though I say all police are slave catchers, which is the fact and the truth. I didn't say all police are bad. They're out right. trying to do what they think is their job. Um, and if they stand up against the machine, they're going to get mowed down. And it happens over and over and over again. And they know that. And they just want to be able mm-hmm. to pay their mortgage and pay for their car note and send their children to college and try to do good for their family. That's all they want to do. 
but you're a part of a machine that is murdering people. It's unacceptable. There's no fixing that. You, you can't reform something like that. A genocide can't be reformed. So you need to recognize your position in this. And many people have done that. I remember one cop who killed himself after explaining how he was involved in these things. Remember that brother that killed himself a couple of years ago on video? Yeah. Uh, Tell mm-hmm. us all about it. Uh, I don't want you to kill yourself. I just want you to recognize what you're helping to uh, maintain simply by putting on that uniform and uh, legitimizing it with your presence. You can save your, these cats all day long, but 30% of y'all, 300,000 are out for blood. And that's not okay. I'd like for us to play one more track. And I'll, I'll say uh, Dealer's Choice. <laughs> um, since considering the flow of what we've been talking about, let's go with Kelly Carter Jackson. Okay. Yeah, and just want to say that we do not advocate violence. I'm not a violent person. I'm all about self-defense, though, and I don't put up with no BS. Um, but I'm not out here calling for the death of nobody. But there are people who have reached a peak where they feel like there's no political answer. There's no legal answer to this. And so they have to defend themselves. I mean, I'm being honest. How many of you out there right now have sworn to yourself that you will never go to jail for the first time or again for anything? You don't care what it is, right? Because you don't know if you'll ever get out or even if you'll make it to the jail. A lot of people that feel like that. And the It's the same way they felt in the 1850s when the fugitive slave laws were enacted. And so we have Kelly Carter Jackson, who is, uh, I believe she's a law student, and she explains how the fugitive slave laws changed abolitionist attitudes about nonviolence. That's going to be followed by Keith Wallace, death to all slave catchers. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. So the fugitive slave law sets off a firestorm, and abolitionists in particular, black abolitionists, are outraged. Uh, There's a quote by a famous black abolitionist and leader, Martin Delaney, and he says, if a slaveholder crosses the threshold of my door looking for slaves, and I do not lay him a lifeless corpse at my feet, I hope that heaven may refuse my soul a resting place um, and my spirit a home, right? And it's, it's such a powerful quote because he's basically saying, over my dead body, will, will you be able to, to take fugitive slaves and send them back? Um, and a lot of black people are responding to this. And their white allies, white abolitionists are also joining the cause. You know, in response to the fugitive slave law, William Lloyd Garrison um, sets the Constitution on fire. Um, And, you know, he is someone who always pushed nonviolence. But when he sees the fugitive slave law, he realizes that that self-defense might be legitimate, that self-defense might be something that could be employed, um, especially when someone's trying to capture you. Um, There are a lot of instances in which black communities are developing their own self-protection societies and uh, vigilance groups to look out for slaveholders or look out for slave catchers, anyone that they suspect of being a kidnapper. Um, And they really say that slave catchers deserve death. 
And in some instances, slave catchers do die. I think the fugitive slave law creates um, what we would call maybe the deadliest catch, right? <laughs> so that when you try to retrieve black people and send them to the South, you put your own life at risk. A really good example is uh, John Anderson. He's an escaped slave uh, who flees all the way to Canada, but in the process, he's being tracked by a slave catcher. And he tells the slave catcher, if you don't stop following me, I'm going to kill you. If you don't stop following me, I'm going to be forced to attack you. And he continues to follow him hour after hour. And by the time he gets to the third hour, he says, I told you I'm going to kill you. And he stops, waits for the slave catcher to get close, and he kills him with his bare hands. And then keeps on going to the north. And when he gets to the north, he tells this story of how he killed a slave catcher to gain his freedom. And the crowd erupts with applause, and they're like, bravo, you did right. And so it's a remarkable moment in which we see that the fugitive slave law has sparked this controversy, but it's also sparked a passion in abolitionists who are now believing that nonviolence may not be the answer. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. I wanna see the kids in the hood play together, play together. Hold hands and even pray together. That man in the sky, I'm hoping he can make it better, make it better. When it's hot, I wish I could change the weather. I wanna see the kids in the hood play together, play together. Move in and even stay together. They gave me the Bible, thought it made me behave better. But I'm rebelling, death tall, slave castle stalled off. Will make his whole head fall off. Paramedics rushing them dead bodies get hauled off. Yeah. The birth of a nation, young Nat Turner, guns up and they blazing. I'd rather die before I live as a slave. African women queens, but they was living as maids on that plantation. For the mouse and his family, it's time for us to rebel, cause I can't dwell in this insanity. In my heart, how much pain could it be? Looking at my ancestors as they hang from a tree and watch it. I sit back while they kill all our prophets. The chop ain't in my hand for none, boy. I'm a poppet. They living foul and rotten on them fields of cotton. Acting like they forgot it. But homie, they still plotting to make America great again. And when they say make America great again, that mean make slaves again. I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together. Hold hands and even Pray together, that man in the sky, I'm hoping he can make it better, make it better. When it's hot, I wish I could change the weather. I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together. Move in and even stay together. They gave me the Bible, thought it made me behave better. But I'm rebelling, death's all slave case. Bombed our churches and they raped our women. Harriet Tubman ran, escaping away from prison, huh? They did us wrong in them days. She would have freed a thousand more had they known they've been slaves. 1849. She escaped to Philly. This knowledge I'm teaching the government probably want to kill me. And they ask me who I'm voting for. Hillary or Donald Trump. What? Man, I'd rather vote for Donald Duck. Democrats and Republicans, same people. Council of Foreign Relations, they plain evil. Honey, stop cut their lights off. I did it so in Cali. And them pigs cut the mic off. Provoking me to hate the law with every breath I'm getting mad. Pain in my heart and I expose with this pen and pad. Ducking your cell like a turtle. What was all lives matter when Emmett Till was murdered? Huh? I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together. Hold hands. 
survival Thought it made me behave better But I'm repelling death all same capital When we reach one teach man Young man time Earth of an S Abolition That was Kelly Carter Jackson How did the fugitive slave law change abolitionist attitudes about nonviolence And that was followed up by Keith Wallace Death to all slave catchers Max You know, as I said, there's people that have become hopeless out here now. When they see these police, they literally are afraid for their lives. Whatever interaction it may be, even the most simplest interaction of, uh, you know, a traffic violation, movement violation, anything. When they see the police, they know that there's a chance they might end up dead today. And that that just should not exist. And it's because they're hopeless. They lost faith in the political system. Uh, those who claim to stand up and fight on behalf of them say it when it's election time and don't do it while they're in office. Uh, if anything, they turn around and do worse to them. The hoods don't change much when the presidents do. Um, they've lost faith, faith in the system, in religion, in society, in everything. And they feel like their lives are literally on the line, and the lives of their children are on the line, and the lives of their ancestors have already been spent. And they're ready to do something about it. And the only solution to that type of attitude is you got to give people hope. Because if you take hope away from a man, you create a beast of prey. Um, it's an ancient African proverb. And that's what's happening. We're taking hope out of people's lives. They're becoming suicidal, genocidal, no respect for life whatsoever. Their role models have no respect for life either. Our media is full with murder, death, kill. We have movies where in the first 15 minutes, at least 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 people are dead, been killed. That's the type of movies we're, we're putting in our minds, you know? Uh, our music celebrates the violence. We're raised in violent communities that where, where violence is like the thing to do. And then you wonder why these kids end up this way. So we got to give them hope. I'd like to believe that the abolitionist movement is that hope. Uh, it's bringing all these different people together to do something that has never been done before, and that is to end slavery in the United States for the first time, legal slavery, constitutional slavery, mm-hmm. to prevent them from doing it any further. Uh, that is something we've never seen. It's what our ancestors dreamed about. I'm pretty sure right. Irene Tubman, when she was taking 20, 30 people from the south to the north, was not thinking, you know, one day I want to be uh, on the Supreme Court. <laughs> that, that wasn't the or on the $20 bill. Mother. Or the $20 or on bill. The $20 bill. That wasn't what was on her mind. On her mind was freedom for her people. That's what our ancestors dreamt of, freedom for the first time. We've never known it, and we still don't. This half-man, half-slave thing is good for monsters, but not for men and women. Isn't that what Frederick Douglass said? Right. Um, go ahead and make some commentary, man. Before we do sign off, I want to try to squeeze in that gravitas at some point, though. So, because our closing the gap is over 10 minutes, I think you should go ahead and uh, play that now. Because okay. I don't have 
I mean, I'd only say exactly what you just said, just in my way of saying it. Uh-huh. You know, because because that that's what it really is, you know. We know it's slavery. We know that the slave patrols and the police officers is a continuation of it. They're like on the front line. They call them the first responders, right? These are the ones that are feeding the system. And so the way we end that is by ending legalized slavery. It's something else when it comes to the bloodlust. You know, that's yeah. something else going on there. You know, I have, I have to sit back and even think. There's no light switch. You know, yeah, you know, other than that, you know, so. The last time yeah. it ended in a civil war, there's no light switch to turn off somebody's hate. Uh, that's not something you can do. But you can't change the supreme laws of the land, which develop the character of a society. And then you can enforce those laws because unless you enforce them, they're useless. You can enforce those laws. Mm-hmm. And that's what you, we are looking to do to make that For happen. Sure. And we got Remember also that um, we need more of a global perspective because it's a global problem. And the world is looking at us in our hypocritical, blind asses, uh, and they have some things mm-hmm. to say. As a matter of fact, that's what I want to play. This is from Gravitas, which is an Indian, India-based news outlet, and it's why is U.S. not take, talking about human rights violations at home? This is what the world thinks of us. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. And before I get to this next story, I want to recap some recent events for you. On the 12th of April, the United States said it is monitoring, quote-unquote, a rise in human rights abuses in India. The very next day, America schooled Russia again on human rights. U.S. President Joe Biden accused the Kremlin of orchestrating a genocide in Ukraine. Why don't I play out that soundbite for you first? Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide in a half a world away. So this is the United States of America, all rich in its lecturing, a champion when it comes to pointing a finger at others. But what about what's happening on its own soil? Do you know what happened to a black man in America recently? He was shot in the head by a white police officer. The man died. This happened in the state of Michigan. The victim's name, Patrick Leoa, he was all of 26. On the 4th of April, Patrick was in his car outside his house. A policeman pulled him over. Body cam footage shows Leoa getting out of his car. The policeman asks him to get back in. Leoa looks confused. He was originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, So even after the officer asked him to get back into the car, the man continues to stand outside looking confused. Perhaps he did not understand what the police officer said. The policeman then asks, can you speak English? Yes, says Leroy. He is asked to show his license, but Leroy starts running from the policeman. The two wrestle on the ground. The white policeman gets out his taser gun. The two fight over it. The policeman asks Leroy to get to let go of the taser. And at this point, the body cam, the body cam goes off. But a person who was in the passenger seat of Leroy's car continues filming what was happening. That video shows the white officer shooting Leroy at the back of his head. What it called for. 
the authorities have no answer. They say the officer concerned is being investigated. The lawyer who is representing Loya's family says the 26-year-old was shot when he, when he was on the ground and facing away from the officer. In other words, the white police officer did not shoot the black man in self-defense. Now, honestly, one should not be surprised if this claim is proven in court. America is a land of police brutality. It is the land where George Floyd was killed, where Michael Brown was killed. Both were men of color. Both were unarmed. This is Dante Wright. He was all of 20 when an American police officer shot him. What was Wright doing? He was driving with his girlfriend. Why did the police shoot him then? They say one officer mistook her gun for a taser. Again, America for you. Meet Brianna Trailer. She was 26 and asleep at home. Three plainclothes police officers arrived at her apartment and said they want to search the place. Why? For drugs, they said. The story ends with Taylor being shot eight times. Again, that's America for you. The same America that lectures the world on human rights. The same America where people like Taylor, like Loa, are killed every day by men and women in uniform. And yet, somehow, the White House thinks it has the license to go about schooling the world on human rights. Does the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, know that between 2013 and 2021, American police killed over 9,000 people, 9,000 people. And we are not even counting, and we are not even accounting for the incidents post-May 2021. If killing in innocent people is not human rights violation, what is? How about America tries to answer this question first before lecturing others? What about America trying to fix its own problems first? U.S. President Joe Biden has not spoken a word yet about the murder of Lea. There has been no statement of condemnation from the White House, no words of solace for Lea's family. In fact, the black man's death is barely national news. People have been protesting the killing, demanding justice, but the federal authorities could not care less. Had this happened... That's it. Wow. The sister brought receipts, man. Receipts. <laughs> the gravitas. Why is U.S. not talking about human rights violations at home? The land of police She brought brutality. the receipts with her. Man. Why? Why are they not talking about it, Max? Because they're guilty. The United States is actively involved in slavery and human tra trafficking and genocide. I mean, how clear can you get it? It's in the Constitution. It's in their history. They've done it since the founding of this country and before. Mm -hmm. And quite naturally, they're not going to indict themselves. They're not going to indict themselves, no. And you can't have slavery without slave catchers. People don't just walk into the cages on their own because you asked them nicely. That does, that's not how it works. Um, that's not why we've got the largest prison population that's ever been on this freaking you got to have slave catchers. And the U.S. police force and our border police now as well are slave catchers. That's what they're out there doing. Uh, you may think if you are a good person, 
but you're a good person involved in an evil industry that is literally participating in crimes against humanity. And I don't care if all you do is make coffee for the rest of the guys every day. You wore the uniform, you participated in the crime. Don't tell me about how you only made bullets, you never fired guns. Mm. That was a hard one there, Max. That was a hard one. So I want to thank everybody. Man, for I wish in I wish we too. had more time for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead, brother. I just say I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and you was always riding even on these rough rides with me uh, like this. If you want to help, join the Abolish Slavery National Network right now. Go to abolishslavery.us, make a donation, join the mailing list, look at the materials, download some of the talking points, whatever. It's all there for you to use. If you're in the states of Vermont, Alabama, uh, Oregon, Tennessee, California, we need your help in getting these bills passed that end slavery in those states for the first time. Get involved with the political structure there. That's where our hope at this point is uh, leaning. Because once we've exhausted all of these legal methods, then we might have to reconsider. Yusuf? Yeah, and I just want to, besides thanking all of our listeners, whether they're listening live or they're going to listen to this at some point in history, you know, because this is archived for history, for historical purposes. So we want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, we want to thank our partners and sponsor, partners and sponsors, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SAMA Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. Uh, That's youtube.com forward slash abolition today. Abolition today is also available on all major podcast platforms. So we'll be back on Monday, May, or May Day. I I should say May Day with Mark Charles. With Mark Charles. Uh, And it'll be another masterclass on slavery abolition. We're going to give more than likely a Lincoln bashing next week. (laughs) I look forward to that when Mark comes on. And with that, our Bridging the Gap today is going to be something really great. It's Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass, and this one is entitled John Brown's Plan, and that's followed by The Sword with the track The Hidden Masters. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. During my first meeting with John Brown, he told me that he had long had a plan which would accomplish the abolition of the slave system. He called my attention to a map of the United States and pointed out to me the far-reaching Alleghenies, which stretch away from the borders of New York into the southern states. These mountains, he said, are the basis of my plan. God has given the strength of the hills to freedom. They were placed here for the emancipation of the Negro race. My plan is to take at first about 25 picked men and begin on a small scale, supply them with arms and ammunition, post them in squads of five on a line of 25 miles, the most persuasive and judicious of whom shall go down to the fields from time to time as opportunity offers and induce the slaves to join them, seeking and selecting the most reckless and daring. They would run off the slaves in large numbers, retain the brave and strong ones in the mountains, and send the weak and timid to the north by the Underground Railroad. 
His operations would be enlarged with increasing number and would not be confined to one locality. He further proposed to have a number of stations from the line of Pennsylvania to the Canadian border where such slaves as he might, through his men, and used to run away, should be supplied with food and shelter and be forwarded from one station to another till they should reach a place of safety either in Canada or the northern states. Hating slavery as I did and making its abolition the object of my life, I was ready to welcome any new mode of attack upon the slave system which gave any promise of success. I readily saw that this plan could be made very effective in rendering slave property in Maryland and Virginia valueless by rendering it insecure. Hence, I assented to this, John Brown's scheme or plan for running off the slaves. Late in September 1859, John Brown wrote to me, informing me that a beginning in his work would soon be made and that before going forward, he wanted to see me and appointed an old stone quarry near Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, as our place of meeting. When I reached Chambersburg, we talked over the enterprise which was about to be undertaken. Captain Brown now declared that it was his settled purpose to take the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, and he wanted to know what I thought of it. I at once opposed the measure with all the arguments at my command. To me, such a measure would be fatal to running off slaves, as was the original plan, and fatal to all engaged in doing so. It would be an attack upon the federal government and would array the whole country against us. Our talk was long and earnest. We spent the most of Saturday and a part of Sunday in this debate, Brown for Harper's Ferry and I against it. He for striking a blow which would instantly rouse the country and I for the policy of gradually and unaccountably drawing off the slaves to the mountains as at first suggested and proposed by him. When I found that he had fully made up his mind and could not be dissuaded, I told him that his old plan was changed and that I could not go with him. In parting, he put his arms around me in a manner more than friendly and said, Come with me, Douglas. I will defend you with my life. I want you for a special purpose. When I strike, the bees will begin to swarm and I shall want you to help hive them. But my discretion or my cowardice made me proof against the dear old man's eloquence. Perhaps it was something of both which determined my course. When about to leave, I asked Shields Green, a fugitive slave from South Carolina who had joined Brown, what he had decided to do, and was surprised by his coolly saying in his broken way, I believe I'll go with the old man. Here we separated, they to go to Harper's Ferry, I to Rochester. On the evening when the news came that John Brown had taken and was then holding the town of Harper's Ferry, I was speaking to a large audience in National Hall, Philadelphia. As I expected, the next day brought the news that with two or three men he had fortified and was holding a small engine house, but that he was surrounded by a body of Virginia militia who thus far had not ventured to capture the insurgents but that escape was impossible. A few hours later, and word came that Colonel Robert E. Lee, with a company of United States troops, had made a breach in Captain Brown's fort and had captured him alive, though mortally wounded. His carpet bag had been secured, and it was found to contain numerous letters and documents which directly implicated me along with several others. This intelligence was soon followed by a telegram saying that we were all to be arrested. 
My friends urged me to move out of Philadelphia at once. I reached New York at night, still under the apprehension of arrest at any moment, and by devious means I finally reached Rochester in safety, but had been there but a few moments when I was informed that the governor of the state would certainly surrender me on a proper requisition from the governor of Virginia. My friends advised me to quit the country, which I did, going to Canada. From Canada, I sent a letter to the Rochester Democrats and American, in which, among other things, I wrote, I may be asked why I did not join John Brown, the noble old hero whose one right hand has shaken the foundation of the American Union and whose ghost will haunt the bedchambers of all the born and unborn slaveholders of Virginia through all generations, filling them with alarm and consternation. My answer to this is the tools to those who can use them. Let every man work for the abolition of slavery in his own way. I would help all and hinder none.
Abolition. Abolition. Hey, this is Max Parkers one more time. Just reminding you to join us on May 1st, when our special guest will be former presidential candidate Mark Charles and slavery abolitionists. Until then, peace. <laughs>